Diego, you gotta trust me. A couple more days and we'll get to do the two things every American teen should have the chance to do. Die young. And stay pretty. From the darkest corners of Chicago, this is the Unenthusiastic Critics Halloween Movie Marathon. Hello everyone and welcome to the Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and don't ever invite her into your home because it renders you powerless, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as the Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. How are you today, dear? I'm okay, how are you? <laughs> On today's episode, Nakia and I conclude our 2019 Halloween movie marathon in peak 80s style with Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys from 1987. Oh, Jesus. Nakia, are you sad to see this year's Halloween marathon come to an end? No, I'm really happy that this is wrapping up. <laughs> You've enjoyed it. I'm, I'm over all of it. <laughs> over it. I think today's movie is a good transitional movie back to normal because it's. I think it's barely a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know horror comedy maybe. You, you you be the judge. It's Kiefer as a vampire. It's Kiefer as a vampire. I don't know how normal that is, but okay. <laughs> so in her 1995 book, Our Vampires Ourselves. <laughs> Victorian scholar Nina Auerbach writes that every age embraces the vampires it needs. Hmm. I didn't see the original Dracula or Nosferatu until I was an adult, I think. Mm -hmm. But as a child growing up in the 70s and 80s, I had been exposed to Frank Langella's elegant gothic vampire in the 1979 remake of Dracula, Chris Sarandon's suburban vampire in Fright Night, George Hamilton's Disco Dracula in Love at First Bite, (laughs) and Stephen King's Nosferatu-like Barlow in the TV miniseries of Salem's Lot. But I don't think my generation discovered any vampires that really spoke to us as aspirational (laughs) until The Lost Boys, which came out the summer I graduated high school. Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. That was the tagline of the movie. Promising a leather-clad, hard-rocking, motorcycle-riding, punk and glam-rock-infused existence of eternal youth. (laughs) That sounded pretty good. And discussing The Lost Boys, Joel Schumacher has said something that you said when we began this year's marathon. Mm -hmm. Vampires are hot. They are the only erotic monster. Frankenstein is not hot, Schumacher said. Frankenstein is not hot. So we will talk a bit more about why The Lost Boys was a ready-made cult phenomenon for the late 80s. But first, I thought, let's let's talk about your aspirational vampires, your vampiric formative experiences. That's actually, so I'm thinking about what you just said. Okay. And that's actually interesting because I think it goes back to a theme that we have hit on many times through the course of this little experiment of ours, particularly with films in the 80s and this idea of the boy man, the man child. Mm-hmm. And the fact yeah, that... It does, that does seem to yeah, come up it comes up a, a lot, lot and so that this, for some reason. <laughs> so the thought that this was sort of the defining <laughs> vampire film of your generation, I don't know if it had happened before that you had young vampires like that. 
that were like high school like aren't they like high school <sighs> they age? are right they're teenagers um i'd have to think about that i'm not sure so that that would be in alignment with this idea of wanting to be a man that doesn't actually have to be a man that gets to be right. You a never child. have. You never have to grow and, up. You know, these boys just happen to also eat people. But um, <laughs> so that's interesting that that is the sort of defining vampire of that generation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is definitely a huge, a huge part of this. I mean, it's to the extent that we've already talked about that horror movies are largely about anxieties. Mm, mm-hmm. I think you have the teenage anxiety about turning into an adult, about growing up, about having to face responsibilities. Vampirism seems like a good way out of that. <laughs> you get to stay young and stay pretty and live this sort of outlaw existence. That mm-hmm. sounds pretty good. Sure, why not? So what what are your pop culture vampire aspirations? Um, I don't know. I mean, I would if we're going by generational representation. And let's be clear, you are what twelve years younger than I am. <laughs> we're not talking about. We are not the same. Right. Right. So I technically I am. Okay, a, but we're not forty years apart. No, we are either. not forty years we're, apart. But I am. I was seventeen when this movie came out. You were five. Right. So I which, missed it. And to be clear, we didn't know each other then because that would be weird. It's weird now. <laughs> um. So I'm millennial. So I think you are technically you're on the I'm older on, I'm like end of the edge right? of millennial. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> where I am smack dab in the middle right. of Generation X. But I think the vampires that have sort of defined the millennial generation are the fucking Twilight sparkly vampires. Yes, which you love those movies. I do not. And books. So for those who are not aware, <laughs> Michael forced me to watch three or four. Uh, I think it was three. Three of those fucking bullshit-ass Twilight okay, films. So we, we've talked about this before. Our longtime <laughs> listeners have heard this story. But basically, I had never seen them either. I had never read the books. When we were doing The Unenthusiastic Critic for the blog, I thought it would be a good experiment for us to watch them together and discuss it together. And I was expecting that we would hate them. Mm-hmm. But I thought... We would, you know, it was something we would be able to make fun of of together. Pop culture analysis. Right. No. And we watched the first one and we just, we had nothing to say about it. There was nothing to say. It was just depressingly bad and not even worth discussing. (laughs) And then you said, well, let's keep going and maybe something will come up. (laughs) And you said that three times. I I thought maybe they got crazier (laughs) or more fun. Or something to justify the obsession with Twilight. Uh-huh. I thought we just had to keep watching. Right. And it would all click into place eventually. It didn't. It was <laughs> shitty the whole way through. And not in an interesting way. And those are not short movies. They are not short films. And they are just, I hate everyone in them. And it's... <laughs> the writing was The bad. most boring vampires I've the ever characters experienced. characters were bad. On top of just being like creepy stalker boyfriend like it was just bad so i reject those vampires yeah. so that was nine hours of those our are life. not my vampires mm-hmm. if i had to choose my favorite vampire film it would probably be jim jarmusch's yeah. only lovers i, I know you love that movie i love that film <laughs> Because they chose two actors who couldn't be more perfectly suited mm-hmm. for playing artsy, urbane vampires in Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston. They're both just stunningly beautiful and waif-like. And <laughs> they wear clothes they well. Wear, <laughs> they wear clothes well. And they're well-read, and they listen to great music, and they're into, like... Doesn't he, like, collect guitars or something? He collects antique instruments and guitars, and so it's this whole, like, he is sort of the analog to her digital, (laughs) 
and they drink blood out of a pair of teeth glasses <laughs> and they hang out with Christopher Marlowe, who's also a fucking vampire. And I just, it is, that film is sort of They fed, travel, they're they international. Travel. She's in Tangier, he's mm-hmm. in Detroit, and yeah. it is Detroit at its most like dilapidated beauty, right? Mm-hmm. Of just like the beauty of nighttime in Detroit, abandoned buildings and wildlife sort of reclaiming space. And it really is this sort of fetishization I'm fucking that word up of like beautiful objects and beautiful mm-hmm. art and whether that's literature or music or thought. And it is just like perfect. It's a perfectly curated world. And I think what I like about it is that it's less, there's really no action there, which is typical for sort of a Jarmusch film. Right. It really is more about this sort of verbal interaction between Adam and Eve is their names. Mm-hmm. Um, But it is this sort of exploration of, like, what does it mean to live in a world and see a world evolve over hundreds of years? And Mm. how two people are experiencing that very differently. Adam, Tom Hiddleston's character, sort of digging his heels into what we've lost and the sort of soullessness of present-day pop culture and the way that humanity tends to destroy its geniuses. Like, he goes on this whole rant about Tesla. And Eve taking the stance of it's a hundred over hundreds of years what can i read what can i see what can i do what can i talk to like let's consume mm-hmm. as much as possible and learn as much as possible and experience as much beauty as possible and not sort of wallow in that and i think that's what i like about it and it when i when you told me we were we were going to be talking about vampires i was tr- sort of going back through which films i have enjoyed the other one being Interview with a Vampire, <laughs> which is sort of that same thing. More very pretty More vampires. very pretty vampires, but also just more just aesthetically beautiful, even in its ugliness. But also this like exploration of what does it actually mean to live as a vampire and mm. the sadness in it. Like, yes, there is a level of just sexiness, right, to vampires, but there's mm-hmm. also this underlying sadness. And what does it actually mean to exist for hundreds of years unchanged when everything is changing around you? So much so that I forgive Brad Pitt for essentially being like a benevolent plantation owner in the film. Like, I have to like compartmentalize. I think I've, I think I've only seen that, that one. That so fluent in that movie. Um, but it's also Antonio Banderas as a vampire, and he's gorgeous. Oh, see, I forgot so he was even just, in it. So I think it is about beauty and. Isn't Kirsten Dunst? Kirsten like Dunst a child plays vampire? like the child vampire, mm. and she is fucking brutal in it, and I love it. <laughs> um, but it really like these two films are really less about vampires as monsters or vampires as it's less about the action of vampire and more about the interiority right, of vampires. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that is probably where I enjoy them the most is in that space. And then, of course, there's Vampire in Brooklyn, which (laughs) I cannot not mention because it's both ridiculous and I think really important. Hmm. So it's Eddie Murphy playing a vampire by the name of Maximilian. I, I got to be honest, and this may shock you, I'm not sure I've seen Vampire We're going to need to rectify that mm-hmm. as soon as possible. But he has a very strong, like, Caribbean, quote, accent. Um, <laughs> and Angela Bassett plays this, like, half-vampire, half-human hybrid, and she's a police officer. And her, um, her partner is named Justice, played by Alan Payne, which is just fucking ridiculous. But it's great because it's, like, it's, it's not a good film. But... <laughs> But one, I will watch Angela Bassett in just about anything. Two, Eddie Murphy's actually good in it. And it's it's this weird cross between a horror vampire film and coming to America in that he also dons all these like disguises in order to walk around New York. Okay. 
with no one knowing that he's a vampire. Um, and so there are these sort of weird comedic moments throughout. Is it a comedy or is it? It's a hybrid. Okay. <laughs> so it has those moments. But her being half human, half vampire, and like she's the only one besides Maximilian that's left of this like uh, lineage of Caribbean vampires mm-hmm. or something. It, t- it brings in this sort of West Indian lore and touches on this idea of like what pieces of us and what culture is lost through the diaspora, right? Okay. Um, and so that's a, that's like a... That's where the important comes from? I, think that, that's, I was listening for the important. That's where the important comes okay. from, but it's also like here is a representation of a vampire that is not white, that is right. not Eurocentric, that is based in New York. Like it is it is also just very like what happens if we take this story and place it in a totally different community and, and represent it in a totally different way. So I think it's important. It is not a good film. <laughs> if for no other reason than Eddie Murphy has like a terrible process on his head and it's just like the hair of the problem for the whole mm-hmm. film. But we should definitely watch it. Do I like any other ones? We discussed, I believe, earlier this season, you like uh, Let the Right One In. I love Let the Right One In. See, I like the moody, atmospheric ones. That one is more gory in action because Mm. that little girl is fucking fierce. Um, (laughs) But it's sweet because it's two little kids, two two little little lonely kids finding each other. And Mm -hmm. it's really sweet and beautiful. So I love that little movie. Okay, but I, so I use the word aspirational. Yes. And that, you know, I I do think Mm. a lot of this has to do with lifestyle Mm -hmm. and glamour and style. Only lovers left alive. That's what, okay, that's what I thought. You would totally live. I would totally live in that damn near. If you could get bitten and be friends with those people. Yes. Now, you love the sunlight. Are you going to be okay giving up the sunlight? Wear Rick Owens all day and, like, just be amazing and shade and, like, gray bands. I would absolutely do it. You're going to give up the sunlight? I would would absolutely give up the sunlight. Okay. We're both kind of night people anyway. (laughs) See, I I wouldn't even hesitate. I'm like, bring it on. I don't... I'd never see the sun again. I'd be perfectly fine. So I saw an article by Siren Conliffe at headstuff.org who said, There's an old truism about vampire and zombie films. Zombie films are about a fear of the mob, the shuffling mass of humanity that could overwhelm and destroy you in an instant if things turn bad. On the other hand, vampire films are about a fear of the elite. The privileged few, untouched by the cares of the world, but reliant on the lower orders for sustenance. That's why in the zombie wish fulfillment fantasy, you fight the monsters, but in the vampire wish fulfillment fantasy, you become the monster. It's fun to be the vampire. Hmm. That's interesting. So in Only Lovers Left Alive, Adam refers to humanity as zombies. He says mm, that they, okay. humans walk through the mm-hmm. world like zombies, just sort of consuming and mindless and not appreciative of all the sort of culture and art and beauty. And again, we kill our geniuses. So that's, a, that's, that's actually really interesting. I, I don't consider myself a class warrior. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently you are. If you want to, you know, wear the Rick Owens clothes and refer to humanity as zombies. Can I be both a Marxist and spend hundreds of dollars? I don't think so. On Rick Owens. I really don't think you can do that. I'm going to figure it out. I think you're going to eventually need to pick a side when the vampire apocalypse comes. (laughs) Oh, this isn't so hard. I think I'm going to love immortality. There is one small disadvantage. We can only live by night. Oh, that's all right with me. I mean, I could never really get my shit together till seven anyway. Okay, so let's let's talk about this movie, and I don't know how much all of that is going to be relevant to this for you, mm-hmm. at least. 
I do think your point about youth, youthful vampires, is definitely relevant to this. And I don't make claims that this is a great movie. I do think it was a phenomenon, a cult phenomenon at the time. I think it was very influential. Kevin Smokler at Decider writes with its tagline, Sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. The Lost Boys sees vampirism as an endless nocturnal rager. The idea, however slick and superficial, has endured. The wax seal the Lost Boys created between vampires and adolescents, between never aging while your living peers are in the middle of figuring out what it means to be human, has been carried now by Buffy and Angel. Joss Whedon has said this movie was an influence on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think Spike, certainly on Buffy, is <laughs> got a direct ties to Kiefer Sutherland in this movie. By Suki Stackhouse and Bill Compton, that's True Blood. Mm. And by Bella and Edward in Twilight. Uh. <laughs> This movie actually began life as a script by Jan Fisher and James Jeremias with much younger characters. It was originally going to be directed by Richard Donner, who had done The Goonies, and it was going to be a Goonies-type vampire movie with, like, eight-year-old characters. <laughs> Eight-year-olds, dude. And it was going to lean much heavier into the Peter Pan theme. It was basically mm-hmm. going to be the Peter Pan story, only Peter Pan is a vampire. That's the title, is a, is a remnant of that original conception. Mm-hmm. Then Richard Donner got offered Lethal Weapon. He went off to do that instead. Joel Schumacher came on to do this movie. Uh, he was fresh off St. Elmo's Fire. And he was like, well, why do they have to be children? Let's make them, you know, sexy teenagers and have them dress cool and have them ride motorcycles. And so re- reimagined the movie. He brought in Jeffrey Bohm, who had written The Dead Zone and would go on to write Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade to do a rewrite of the script and make them all cool teenagers. Mm-hmm. Joel Schumacher... What do you know, Joel Schumacher? You know Joel Schumacher from A Time to Kill. Okay. One of my favorites. One of your favorites. Go ahead and do the line. (laughs) Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. (laughs) You say that about three times a day. Because it's just beautiful. (laughs) And Schumacher, who has made, you know, a lot of interesting stylish movies, is, I can't even say it's unfair, he is probably best known at this point for making the two worst Batman movies. Oh, which ones are these? Uh, Batman Forever with Val Kilmer mm-hmm. and Batman and Robin with George Clooney. Ah, uh, the nipples. The nipples on the bat suit. Yeah. That was Joel Schumacher's sensibilities. Because it's sexy? <laughs> Presumably. To tweak Batman's nipples uh-huh. with the suit. Okay. Sure. All right. <laughs> And we may as well get out here right now. Schumacher is gay. There was a lot of discussion of the gay subtext in Batman and Robin, and there's going to be a lot of discussion of the gay subtext in The Lost Boys. All right. Which we will talk about. This keeps coming up with 80s movies, too, doesn't it? Well, to be fair, in in Interview with a Vampire, there is... Oh, it's not even subtext. subtext. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's front and center. So... Right. But I'm thinking these other 80s movies we've watched, like Top Gun. Well, because uh, it was all about bros and their bro friends. Point Break is, I think, 1990, but still part of that tradition. Which I think, you know, maybe we need to get back to that. (laughs) You dudes need to get over your shit. Make out with your friends. It stars, as you said, Kiefer Sutherland, um, Jason Patrick, who... 
He Jason Patrick has not had the career he deserved. I thought he was pretty good. He's actually the son of another horror star. He's the son of Jason Miller, who was the priest in The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. Both of the Corys, Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, are in this movie. This was the movie that set off the two Corys the thing. The two Corys, okay. Jamie Gertz is <laughs> in this movie. Oscar winner Diane Weist, fresh off her Oscar win for Hannah and Her Sisters, and Edward Herman, who you know as Rory Gilmore's grandfather, is in this movie. The soundtrack was a big deal. Songs by In Excess, Roger Daltrey, Echo and the Bunnymen. That last one I'm not familiar with. You don't know Echo and the Bunnymen? I probably know a song, but I don't know the name. Okay. Can you sing a little? No, I can't. (laughs) The only song of theirs I know is they did a remake of... People Are Strange by the Doors that is in this movie. Okay. Yeah. I don't know that I've heard that. All right. Okay. Schumacher apparently tried to develop a sequel to this movie, which would have been called The Lost Girls. Uh, That never got off the ground. There were two direct-to-video low-budget sequels, The Lost Boys, The Tribe, in 2008, with Corey Feldman, I believe, the only original cast member coming back. Mm -hmm. And then an even more ill-fated follow-up, The Lost Boys, The Thirst, in 2010, with... 2010? Yeah. That's okay. With Jameson Newlander, who plays Alan Frog in the original movie. Uh, Both of these currently hold an impressive 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. So maybe not something we need to to watch. Well, I've already learned my lesson to not do vampire sequels with you, so. What are you saying? I will not be doing vampire sequels with you. Have we done vampire sequels? We just talked about that whole fucking Twilight bullshit. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And then there is apparently a TV version Mm. of the Lost Boys coming from the CW, of course. Of course it is. This was tailor-made for the CW. With 40-year-olds playing high school? (laughs) Perhaps. It's apparently from Veronica Mars executive producer Rob Thomas. So Mm -hmm. who knows? Might be good. Or we could just come up with new ideas. <laughs> no, there are no new ideas. We've exhausted <laughs> we could just do all something of different. the ideas. Get it? Okay, make it chicks. Get it again? Okay, make it black. <laughs> just, or do something different. You're so cynical. Well. So what are you expecting from this movie? Nothing. I, nothing. <laughs> nothing. It's the Corys and Kiefer as teenage vampires. I'm not really expecting a whole lot. Lost Boys is available to rent from Amazon Prime, iTunes, and other services. And it's currently streaming on HBO Go for subscribers, which I believe is how we are going to watch it. So if, like Nakia, you have not seen The Lost Boys, and if, unlike her, you want to, you can check it out there. We're going to go watch it now. Okay. Michael and Sam have just moved to Santa Carla, California. They're about to discover its secret. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. So where are you? The flying nun! I'm your brother, Sammy! Help me! Stay back! Stay back! What's happening to me, Star? Get yourself a good, sharp stick. Drive it right through his heart. You're a vampire, Michael! My own brother, a damn blood-sucking vampire! Oh, you wait till Mom finds out, buddy! When a vampire buys it, it's never a pretty sight. Michael, they're coming! Oh, shit! 
And we're back. During the break, Nakia and I watched The Lost Boys. Nakia, it may shock you to learn that The Lost Boys was not particularly well received by the critical community. That is shocking. (laughs) Uh, Roger Ebert gave it a mediocre two and a half stars. He said, there's some good stuff in the movie, but when everything is all over, there's nothing to leave the theater with. No real horrors, no real dread, no real imagination, just technique at the service of formula. Time Out's review was a little worse. They called it a pathetic attempt at comic horror, which not only plays fast and loose with vampire mythology, but also fails to deliver either frights or laughs. Directed with a cavalier disregard for intelligibility, this has to be one of the most anemic vampire flicks ever made. Wow. Right? Michael Wilmington at the New York Times said, There's always room for fancy trash, and this movie about a gang of punk vampires terrorizing the new kids in town seems capable of providing some. Then the characters open their mouths. Something that might be dialogue emerges. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, Karen James, also at the New York Times, called it a hip comic twist on classic vampire stories. It's not timeless, but timely, sardonic, and shrewd. (laughs) And then, as I said, I think this just became a cult hit over the years and is now looked back on fondly as an 80s classic of sorts. (laughs) Question mark. Tom Forty, writing recently in The Telegraph, called it the most 80s movie ever. Like other 80s teen films, Back to the Future, Stand By Me, The Goonies, The Breakfast Club, The Lost Boys is like an old mullet-haired friend to whole generations of viewers, with each subsequent viewing packing a nostalgic wallet powerful enough to knock us back to the first night we saw it. Like a dose of eternal youth itself, never grow old, never die, indeed. Ikea, what did you make of The Lost Boys? I thought it was silly. (laughs) (laughs) Is that like fun? That is not like fun. I didn't find it to be fun. Um, But I'm also, I'm obviously coming to this late. It may have been fun for me in the 80s had I seen it in the 80s. Well, definitely if I was, you know, five, I maybe would have thought it was fun. But yeah, I thought it was silly. I thought save for Kiefer and Diane Wiest. (laughs) No one was really bringing a whole lot (laughs) to the table. (laughs) And I didn't find it particularly scary. I didn't find it particularly funny, other than like laughing at things that they weren't meant for me to laugh at. Uh, <laughs> unintended laughs. Un- unintended laughs. No, I didn't enjoy it. Mm, it right. felt long for me, <laughs> and it was only an hour and a half, and I, it just it just felt interminable. So I yeah. I do I do remember you saying about halfway through like how much of this is left. And yeah. You were surprised that we were not further along. Yeah. Than we were. So saying that, so that's one side of it. Okay. The other side of it is if I engage with this film on a deeper level, which I'm not really inclined to do, but if we wanted to do that. (laughs) Oh, I think we do. We could talk about, you know, one of the things you mentioned at the top of the episode was this idea that every generation gets the vampire that they need or they deserve. Mm -hmm. And so what does it mean to like have vampires of the Reagan era? Right. And representation of a sort of family unit and this idea of lost boys when sociopolitically we were trying to advance this narrative of like the nuclear family yep, and how exactly. important that was and how important morality was, et cetera. So if if I disdained to even <laughs> go that road, we could have that conversation and maybe we will later. But in terms of just enjoyment of the film, I, I could leave it, quite frankly. Okay, well, I mean, I... Because I, here's the thing. Oh, okay. A film 
that asks you on the foggiest night in America on a boardwalk, can you take seriously a bleach blonde, mullet haired <laughs> vampire riding a Ferris wheel? It's just a carousel. A carousel. Sorry. <laughs> Worse, right? I don't, I don't think they have the budget for the Ferris yeah, wheel. Yeah, so that's worse, actually. <laughs> yes, a carousel. And it's just, the answer is nope. Can't take that seriously. You, so you couldn't take that seriously. From jump, from sort of point one, I was, I was out. <laughs> All right. Well, I do want to talk about everything that you just, you just talked about, but Not let's, really, let's kind of do some, some overview here. Talk to me about the, uh, well, let's start there. Let's start with the vampires. Okay. So it is Kiefer Sutherland as David. Yes. And his three friends, who I don't know that we ever know their names. We do learn their names. They don't <laughs> register. They don't really speak. Particularly. Yeah, he's really the only presence yeah. in that group. One of them is played by Alex Winter. Who From was Bill and Ted. Either Bill or Ted. Yeah. I forget which one is which. But <laughs> the one who wasn't Keanu Reeves. <laughs> And then there's a blonde one and a brunette one. And a brunette. One, and they all That's... have some form of like a half shirt on. <laughs> and they have, you know, 1980s rock band hair. And they are stalking a boardwalk. Mm-hmm. And so what I will say is that Kiefer is just inherently a little bit creepy. He has a little weirdness to him. So mm-hmm. he, he's, he he brings that to the role. But honestly, the other I think the I think the only other movie he had done before this was Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Where he was also the villain. Yeah. And basically, this is like that character As a became vampire. a vampire. Yeah. 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 But yeah, he's the only one that really registers. Okay. Well, we, we started off the episode discussing the inherent eroticism of vampires. No, no one is sexy. None of those vampires. <laughs> no one in this None movie of those vampires are sexy. Is sexy. When they turn Michael, Michael is not sexy. No. no none of the vampires are sexy. Oh, dear. Edward Herman. Gilmore? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dress like a fucking fed? No, he is not sexy. He was obviously the head vampire the whole time. No, not sexy. Okay. No. Uh, Corey Haim? He was wearing your auntie's duster coat. Like, for most of the... Like, no, n- no one in this film is sexy. That is not a thing. C- Corey Feldman? Again. The Frog Brothers? So, here's the question with Corey Feldman. <laughs> and I brought this up while we were watching it. Yes, you He's did. doing some weird voice... <laughs> That I don't understand the choice behind. He sounds like two kids wearing a trench coat. <laughs> and I don't know why he made that choice. Because you didn't, he didn't, he could just speak in his normal voice. He's supposed to be a teenage boy. He could have just been a teen, but he chose I, this like affected, like, I'm a grown up voice. And it's just like, why are you doing I, this? I actually have the answer to that question. Okay. I would love to hear it. Uh, Joel Schumacher told him to go home in preparation for this role, told him to go home and watch Rambo and Chuck Norris movies. Oh, God. And said, that's that's your character. Oh, dear God. <laughs> that's a director leading you astray. <laughs> he had the headband, like, yeah, going the, right. the bandana. All so he's, he's doing a little Sylvester Stallone, okay. Chuck Norris. Got it. So it's method. American uh-huh. hero sure. kind of thing there. Yeah, yes. It sounded ridiculous. <laughs> Okay, so not so not not sexy. No, the clothes, anything. It was the eight. The eighties were just bad. It was it was an unfortunate time for fashion. It was not a good time for anyone. (laughs) Despite you know fashion cyclical nature and the desire to bring those things, it was not a good time for us. What about just the basic, you know, aesthetic of the movie? Uh, This was filmed in Santa Cruz, Mm -hmm. California. 
Um, Santa Cruz did not want its name used in the movie, so they called it Santa Carla. They did not want to be referred to as the murder capital of the world, <laughs> despite the fact that Santa Cruz had, in fact, been called the murder capital of the world. Really? I did not Due know to that. a string of serial killers who operated in that area in the 1970s. Huh. So they, they were not excited to have that image reattached to them from this movie. Chicago would like a word. Uh, but in every other way, it is Santa Cruz. I dated a girl in college from Santa Cruz. I was very excited to go there and, and see the boardwalk and everything when I was in college. And when you got there? Uh, not as exciting yeah, as, exactly. as, as I had hoped. Mm-hmm. There were no vampires that I could see. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I get why this film spoke to you. Oh, okay. Quite literally. This is going to be insulting in some way, but but go ahead. So the main character's name is Michael. <laughs> yes. So the whole time, <laughs> Kiefer's wooing Michael. He's saying, you know, come to me, Michael. Mm. Be one of us, Michael. You are really this is, this is something everyone talks about with this movie. And I have to confess, I didn't notice it, but I guess it's because of my name, that some variation of the name Michael is said more than 100 they times They say it so in much. In this movie. It's actually a very intimate thing. <laughs> like Kiefer every says line everyone says to him, they feel the need to say his name. Yes. <laughs> so I think that that's why you connected so deeply with this, because you felt that Kiefer was speaking to you, calling you to join him in the Lost Boys. Uh, I, I think he was going to catch you in the fog. <laughs> That's what you wanted. Okay, well, now you're jumping to the homoerotic subtext here. No, no, let's go ahead. I don't think we need to go through this movie scene by scene. I think <laughs> let's just let's just jump around here and dis- discuss this masterpiece. Okay. So let, let's talk about some of this subtext that you're picking up on here. Mm-hmm. First of all, leaving the homoeroticism out for a moment, I do think you're right about the kind of 80s... Calling it political is overstating yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's not that. But there's a certain cultural resonance that a lot of stuff has here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we're talking about, you know, I think the runaway kids thing. This was the era of kids on milk cartons, which we see mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, the broken home divorce thing versus the romanticizing of the nuclear family that was coming out of the Reagan mm-hmm. administration and its partnership with the moral majority, that kind of stuff. Diane Weist is recently divorced Mm -hmm. in this, and, you know, we have this kind of broken home dynamic, and the kids sort of at loose ends, Mm -hmm. you know, finding these alternative families. Mm -hmm. Grandpa Gilmore, you know, says a boy needs, children need a father, and kids need discipline, and there's that whole message coming from his family dynamics there. (laughs) And then, of course, we have the AIDS crisis. Yes. Which... Any vampire movie, especially from that era, is is going to come up against. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. Talk talk about any of that. See, again, I, I said at the top I, I didn't care enough about it to talk about any of that. But <laughs> we can, if we must. So, yes, as you said, we have Diane Weiss, who is, you know, a recently divorced woman, moving back in with her father, with her two sons. And, you know, what does it mean for a woman to sort of step outside of what had been traditional sort of gender roles and have to go get a job in order to support her family? Mm -hmm. But that meant that she also couldn't be in the home to sort of provide the discipline and the sort of oversight that some people argue is like the key to a good family and and healthy children. and And I don't know. I don't know when exactly the point was where divorce became more common than the alternative. Mm -hmm. I know in my part of the world, it was probably right around then. Mm -hmm. My parents got divorced right around this time, and I was literally the only one of my friends whose parents were divorced. Mm -hmm. It was not as common. So this is timely, I think, in that sense. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's also like, you know, it, there's a little bit of this dance in the film of whether or not it's a repudiation of the nuclear family or not, because Diane Weist's character spends the majority of the film trying to, you know, have a relationship with Gilmore. Um, <laughs> this and like, is Max. His character's <laughs> name is Max. Really wanting to make this relationship work, even though there's no sign that he's even an interesting person or anything like that. And her frustration with the fact that she feels like her kids are getting in the way of that and trying to block her from having Mm -hmm. this sort of second happily ever after sort of thing. And there's a moment towards the end of the film, once Gilmore reveals himself to be the Grand Poobah of vampires... And he's like, you know, I saw you and I wanted you because I wanted you to be a mother to my boys and your boys and we can have a little happy family. And he's going to bite her neck. And she is, for a moment, interested. And No, no. Yes. No. Yes. She is going to agree to it because he's going to kill her children otherwise. Because she'd rather be married than deal with her fucking kids. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But yeah, I mean, and there is this, you know, when you overlay the sort of AIDS crisis and the fact that, you know, in the 80s, it was still defined as a gay disease. Right. Then the homoeroticism of the film (laughs) takes on a much more sort of sinister tone um, where you have Michael drinking David's blood and Mm -hmm. um, sort of being, quote unquote, infected and is now can no longer be a part of a normal family. He has to now he's now a lost boy. Um, Right. All of the sort of quote-unquote lost men of that generation who were gay and who were either chose to leave their families or were expelled from their families because of their identities yeah this is uh this is k gabriel writing at vrv says the lost boys fashions a moral allegory out of unbridled desire embarking on your rake's progress implies both zero conversion the switch in your hiv status from negative to positive Mm. following transmission Mm -hmm. that's the the drinking of the blood Mm -hmm. and a subsequent disfiguring transformation into a violent agent of social decay (laughs) they lure michael back to their underground squat a once grand hotel collapsed into a sinkhole of vampire decadence there's a girl somewhere in somewhere in there who needs rescuing but she's pretty nakedly a device a third term between the poles of homoerotic desire michael rubs his friction out with david the biggest blondest mullet around drink some of this michael david says holding a bottle of his own blood be one of us i don't i don't even think it's it's not particularly subtle no. subtext in all of this. Mm-hmm. And it was recognized as such at the time. Hmm. Um, this is Elsie Levia at Brightwall Dark Room, who describes this film as his cinematic queer awakening. <laughs> <laughs> he says, whereas there was a clear subversion of queer themes within earlier vampire stories. I found there was nothing really subverted in The Lost Boys at all. At nine years old, I watched it from start to finish, on loop, because everything was on the table. No stone was left unturned. Even though I lacked the proper vocabulary and insight to give these feelings a name, the characters' plot, setting, and dialogue oozed allusions to queer culture. Hell, even the catchy theme song, Cry Little Sister, which boasts such lyrics as, Unchain me, sister, love is with your brother, leaves very little to the imagination. So he says, come for the homoerotic subtext, stay for the shirtless saxophonist. Mm. <laughs> dude, so that dude yeah, uh-huh. is from Tina Turner's yes, band. Yes, that's Tina Turner's I kept Saturday. looking at him and I was like, yeah. why do I know him? But And the only reason I know him is because in uh, What's Love Got to Do With It, <laughs> the biopic starring Angela Bassett, at the end, she's they do flashes. It starts out with Angela doing performing What's Love Got to Do With It. 
And then shows the real and then Tina. shows the real mm-hmm. um, real Tina with her band, and that dude is like jamming on the keyboards <laughs> or something. And I was like, why do I know this asshole? Was he all oiled up? He like was, he was here? all like souped up even yeah. then, and I'm just like, why do I know this guy with the same like barely there tank top? Um, he didn't have all the like bicycle chains <laughs> and things that he was rocking in this film, but the fact that they were like jamming out at a saxophonist concert <laughs> <laughs> was just like as if they were watching Guns and Roses or something was mm-hmm. a little interesting. Thing. But yeah, I mean, like this idea of um, sort of boho Apollonia serving as a vehicle or a tool in this sort of triangle between Michael and David and 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 Star, who I'm calling boho Apollonia. Yeah, I did, that would, um, went right over my head. <laughs> so there's a moment after Michael's been quote unquote turned, well, halfway turned, I guess, and their family dog attacks him and bites him on the hand, which the dogs always know. Um, he goes to the lair and finds. Always listen to the dogs. Always That's listen one to of the your dogs. Of horror movies. It's a beautiful dog too. Um, so Michael goes to the lair and finds Boho Apollonia, and he's like, <laughs> "What's going on with me? What's happening?" And she's sort of like, "I don't know how to help you." Next minute, they're having sex as if the cure for this quote-unquote infection exactly, exactly. is this heterosexual right. moment. Also, score to cry, little sister. Which is interesting now that you you read those lyrics. And I believe this comes after the evening that he has spent where they're on the bridge. Yes. Where he is out with just the boys. Mm-hmm. Star is not there. No. And they've gone to this bridge and they've, they're dangling from the bridge. Which... Is that a fun night out? <laughs> you know, I... You small town kids. Well, that's, see, that's not a small... Th- that's the thing. It's like, I grew up in a small town. We would have done shit like that because there was nothing else. <laughs> we didn't have a boardwalk. <laughs> but yes, then it's, they all let go, and David's the last one, and he says, you know, join us, let go, you're one of us. Mm-hmm. And again, just the boys here. Yeah. David lets go, and then Michael finally falls, mm-hmm. and he falls through the fog, and then it transitions... He lands in his bed. bed, Yeah. So, yes. And then, like you said, that's when he goes running to Star Mm -hmm. to reclaim his humanity slash heterosexuality. heterosexuality. Yeah. Right. Yes. There is definitely more heat between he and he and David, he and Kiefer, than there is. Boho Apollonia. (laughs) Well, because she's also, to be fair, Michael brings nothing to the table. Like, he was basically a zombie before he became half vampire. I did not find him to be a charismatic actor at all. And so then when it got to the point where he had been, he had drank the blood and he was sort of deteriorating and fading into really like nothingness other than like there would be sort of flashes of aggression and then it was just like nothing mm-hmm. and then uh, you know boho apollonia was sort of like just this she she has no there's no character just nothing there, there. Not, so, yeah yeah we're not interested in the female no. character here no but yeah they're all hanging out in what looks to be like a dystopian anthropology store and i just <laughs> it's just hard to take that seriously now interestingly as long as we're talking about the homoerotic subtext Corey haynes character is the one clearly coded as gay yes basically everything about yep. that character mm-hmm. the way he dresses he has a beefcake rob Lowe poster hanging yes. in his bedroom he does but there's um, also a molly ring wall there there is also a molly ring wall but that's <laughs> might be you know <laughs> we got that scene of him singing in the bathtub mm-hmm. uh, you know with all the bubbles and yeah. right mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah and it's also just a weird character i mean when he finds out that michael is a vampire his response is like i'm gonna tell mom and it's like he didn't break a dish he's a vampire 
that's a that seems it just seems like a disproportionate response. Like you should probably be freaking out a little bit more, but okay. So you should be killing him, which is what the Frog Brothers recommend. That's the only thing I like about the Frog Brothers is that they are very no nonsense. <laughs> like everybody has to die. So you just we don't have time for sentimentality. You want you want to talk about the Frog Brothers? Well, it's a guy and then two kids in a trench coat <laughs> who have read lots of comic books about vampires <laughs> and have developed tactics. <laughs> To deal (laughs) with the vampires. But they are actually quite sort of nonchalant about the whole thing. It's like, of course, yes, there are vampires here and and we are going to deal with them. So they proceed to set up some sort of like home alone trap style thing (laughs) to, you know, kill the vampires. They also, we should mention, that represent another one of these sort of family crises things because... Their parents are like dead or something? Their parents are... They look like stoned hippies that are just passed out all the time. We never see them awake. No. They're just passed out in the comic book store that they work in. So the Frog Brothers are pretty much on their own. Yeah. A grandpa, we haven't talked about grandpa, Bernard Hughes. Mm -hmm. Um, So grandpa was, I mean, a quirky character, I guess. (laughs) Very extensively into taxidermy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently had a very hot and heavy relationship going on with some older woman in town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Grandpa was mainly there so that at the end of the movie he could say, that's the one thing I hated about this town was all the <laughs> all damn, the va- damn vampires. vampires. Which is actually a, a, a good sort of... Classic last line. Classic last line. But, yeah. Okay. Did you enjoy any of the, you know, action sequences? <laughs> Okay, everything I ask you, you just keep making that same little laugh. Like, it's a ridiculous question. Action sequences. I ask you about the clothes, you make a little laugh. Mm-hmm. I think the sort of final showdown between the Lost Boys and um, the family at their house is entertaining enough. They were able to, you know, use a number of different spaces. So they had the holy water and the garlic bathtub that they threw one of the vampires mm-hmm. in, and he sort of melted, which was a pretty good effect. And then all the pipes in the house and then exploded. It, it, with blood, and I just, I don't, Life I didn't happens. understand the physics of that at all, but okay. Uh, and then there was a showdown between, I think, Corey Haim and one of the vampires that never speaks. Right. And he shot him with an arrow, and the vampire says something to the effect of, you missed, sucker. Which was just like... <laughs> and you burst out laughing Because at it that was line. ludicrous. <laughs> Number one, are you in a black exploitation film and we didn't know it? Like, why are you talking like that? And I don't think he had spoken at no, all. No, I think that was. I think that was his one. The line entire in this film. Movie. So again, that was probably Joel Schumacher saying, "Go watch some black exploitation films and get some inspiration because when you do this line, I want you to be able to sell that sucker." So, um, despite not being, we should say not being, not black, at all black, not no. nowhere near. There, there black. are no black uh, characters in this movie <laughs> once again. And then the sort of final fight between Michael and David. Mm-hmm. You know, the effects weren't so great. No, there really aren't any effects. <clears throat> well, uh, they tried to like have them fly through the air, and they just shouldn't. Have done because oh, yeah, they, they did, they did not have right the technology the to do that. But for most of the movie, Schumacher and this is uh, this was a fairly low budget movie. I mm-hmm. think it was eight an eight million dollar budget. They didn't have flying yeah. effects. They yeah. just so basically what we see is the camera right. swooping in, right. and that, that's supposed to yeah to be the vampires swooping in. Yeah, but yeah, so David and Michael have that sort of final fight where they're basically both trying to sort of stab each other on the antlers on the antlers that line the walls yeah. of this house so. with grandpas taxidermy hobbies. Mm-hmm. David apparently was not supposed to be dead because we don't see David explode or anything. No. And he was just impaled on antlers. So that David was going to be able to come back for the sequel. Uh, Sadly, that never happened. So you you just sort of weren't impressed with anything here, were you? 
No. Seems like a weird choice for Diane Weist. <laughs> I love Diane Weist for making this movie. <laughs> I think it's hard for me to like get through the, the silliness or get past the silliness of it, to actually engage with it, engage with anything it may be saying sort of culturally, which is probably not fair on my part. But well, I think, take for example... Because there are threads you could pull, I think, in a number of different places in this film. And we've talked about some of it about this sort of challenging the idea of the nuclear family and homoeroticism and the AIDS crisis and the sort of pathologizing of gay men. But then having something like Kiefer being sort of hoisted onto antlers... Right. And which are these very sort of traditional totems of masculinity. Mm, Sure. So like that's what I'm saying. Like, so, yeah, like if we wanted to do this, I could do the like bullshit grad school thesis thing where it's like, yeah, and that's a statement on blah, blah. But it's just like it's also a silly film. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong about that. And I don't think any of that is very deep Mm -hmm. or sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't ultimately think Schumacher is that kind of director. Mm -hmm. I think he's just flashy and I I think all of that stuff is there, but I don't think it's very well thought through or trying to say anything profound. I think it's kind of just subtextual window dressing Mm -hmm. to this story. Um, And like, what does it mean that Gilmore is the uber vampire who has sort of loosed the these lost boys on a community when he is purportedly an advocate for morality and order and discipline and so what does that mean for like if we then sort of extrapolate that to okay well if we're talking about reagan or or reaganomics what are the sort of ugly underbellies that those systems those policies those sort of socioeconomic and political structures necessitate in order for them mm-hmm. to work right um so again so it's like total bullshit but like you could do it <laughs> you could go well, i don't i don't know that you could because i don't think it i think even if you go to that level i don't think it makes sense right like you're saying he if he's the one that's you know traditional family values mm-hmm. nuclear family then it doesn't make sense for his alternative family to be the bastion of homosexuality right, and right. freedom and all of that like the the messages are mm-hmm. totally screwed up here mm-hmm. so again i just don't i think it's all just at best bubbling up from the time period mm-hmm. i don't think it's very coherent yeah I have to say, watching it this time, you know, I when we started out, I used the word aspirational and <laughs> talked about how it was cool to be a vampire. Still think it's cool. I didn't, I didn't think the vampires were that cool in this one. I didn't really think like that looked like such a great life. The vampire life? I mean, like you said, there's the, like, oh, we're going to go hang from the bridge while the train yeah, runs over it. Is that fun? Exciting. No, it's not. Which is, again, further reinforcement that... Only lovers left alive. Be a vampire and go to Tangiers and hang out with John Hurts, Christopher Marlowe. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like if you're gonna spend a lifetime, I, I do think that if you have eternity, yes, you can find something better to do than hang out at a fucking than ride boardwalk. the carousel yeah. on the boardwalk yeah. and eat surf Nazis. Yeah, like that's not that fun. No, they were also eating Chinese food, which I didn't think vampires could eat. But some, then some vampires can eat. He had trouble. Michael had trouble drinking milk after he was sort of. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, he the it's milk in, does repulse inco- him after he's. But they were eating Chinese food. Or were they? 
They were eating Chinese food. Because the Chinese food turned into maggots and maggots whatever, and except worms. Except they weren't. They were, but still, then you're eating maggots and worms. So you're still ingesting something. <laughs> the whole point is like vampires don't ingest anything except for blood. So that annoyed me a little bit. Really? That's, yeah. what, that's what annoyed you about this? Because <laughs> that's sort of a long-standing, maybe it isn't, fact about them. It's like they don't eat food. I think it varies from mythos to mythos. Yeah, I think there's some, some variation there in the vampire lore. All right. Well, did you like anything about this movie? Soundtrack? No. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, did I? The dog was good. The dog was Nanook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a theme now. I like the chimp in the last movie <laughs> and the dog in this movie. Okay. And any other performances? I mean, Diane Weiss was great. She's Diane Weiss, so right. she's always going to be great. And Kiefer did his Kiefer thing, which hmm. I feel like it doesn't take a whole lot of work for him to do that. But Right. And he actually had like fewer lines yeah. than everyone else in the movie. So yeah. it's really just his glare. Yeah. And him lovingly saying Michael, which is it's like, all right, well. <laughs> maggots, Michael, you're eating maggots. <laughs> uh, how about the Corys? Talk about the Corys. The- well, we've talked about the Corys. I mean, Corey Haim was, again, not great. Um, <laughs> and... Corey Feldman, as I mentioned earlier, just made one terrible choice that just fucked up the entire... I saw some critics say that he walked away with the movie, that he was the best part of the movie. I don't have a notation yet. Because that's not real. I can't cite that here, but I I know I saw Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, about as real as those maggots that they were eating. No. Because he just plays it straight. He just, you know, he's he knows what movie he's in. He doesn't. He thinks he's in Rambo or some... <laughs> no, he's acting like he's in Rambo, but okay. that's what's funny it's about the character. That's what's funny about the character. Except when it? it doesn't work, and then the whole time I'm sitting there like, is he joking? Is this a joke? Am I supposed to take him seriously? You know the whole movie wasn't particularly serious, no, right? I, it no, wasn't I understand. trying to be... I totally understand that. Okay. Which, I feel again, like, speaks I feel to, like, like some, you miss that sometimes. No, the, it's the, just the, to- the tone was... Just supposed to be fun. All over the place too, because mm. then you also had Kiefer like biting into some dude's head, and <laughs> blood was spurting all over the place. So it's also just like it was a little bit all over the place. But okay, that one like why you can bite the guy anywhere? Why yeah. would you go out of your way to bite through his skull? That yeah. just seems like a lot of work. <sighs> I don't. I don't know what to do with this. Once again, you just come to these movies too late. And I will repeat what I said to you as we were watching the movie and I could hear you checking out. If Jason Patrick's part Here we go. had been played by Keanu Reeves, this would be your favorite movie of all time. Absolutely not. It absolutely would. Absolutely not. I don't enjoy every Keanu Reeves film. So it, Keanu Reeves being in a movie does not mean that I'm going to automatically love it. You like Dracula. Because I think he stretched himself. <laughs> and he tried. <laughs> to the breaking point. He tried to do something different. And I respect that. Like a dried out rubber band, he snapped from stretching himself. Okay. I respect his choices. (laughs) If this had been, you know, Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze, this would be your favorite movie of all time? No. I mean, there would be at least more sexual chemistry going on because, again, I don't think that, what is his name, John Patrick? What, Jason Patrick? Jason Patrick. I don't think he brought anything to the film. So anybody else but him would be an improvement. Was he pretty? No. No? Not even? No. I think you just weren't in the mood for this somehow. (laughs) You just like to make excuses for reasons why I don't like movies you like. (laughs) I understand that you connected with Michael. Mm -hmm. You wanted to be Michael. Mm -hmm. It's a sad, sad tale. (laughs) So you would not want to join this vampire family? Well, I wouldn't be wanted because they don't really want girls. So Yeah, they're not very interested. They didn't 
seem to be particularly interested in star no, either. No, no, no. And I don't tend to drink random blood that people hand me, so I probably you don't tend to. Yeah, <laughs> you know, on occasion. How, how often does that come up? <laughs> just, More often than you. I'm just curious. <laughs> okay, I think that's a sound policy. Yeah. So no, I would not be joining the Lost Boys. <sighs> All right. Anything else to say about this movie? No. <laughs> Nothing. Glad you watched it? Nope, not really. Canonical classic? No. No. I will forget it immediately. All right. Do you want to take a moment to do a little retrospective on our 2019 Halloween movie marathon? This is the last film. Um, It was, as usual, a waste of my time. I still am not a fan, in general, of the horror genre. Let's let's do a little test here. Okay. Can you actually name the movies we watched <laughs> for our horror marathon this year? Nope. Or have you already blocked them all out? There was the one with the chimp. <laughs> Which was... Phenomena. And okay. the only reason I remember that is because I keep going to the... Yeah, Phenomena. The fuck else? They say short-term memory is the first thing to go. The fuck else do we watch? That's it. Really? Oh, uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. And Bride, Bride of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. How many am I missing? Uh, just one. Give me a genre. Like, what is... <laughs> <laughs> Give me a hint. Murderous dwarf witch. Oh God! Yes, yes. Don't look now. <laughs> Don't look now. Yes, that's right. Okay. So see, so it's all there. That's five. Well, five weeks, six masterpieces. I think you're using that word wrong. <laughs> I would argue there's maybe two worthy films in that batch. Phenomena. No. And the Lost Boys. Wrong. Don't look now. Save for the ending, and then Quiet Place. What? Okay, so you just dismissed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I mean. I didn't. I respect them for their place in the canon. It's like you know the Odyssey. Like, all right, I respect it. But (laughs) (laughs) now now we've just dismissed the cornerstone of Western literature. It's like the Common Core. It's like, all right, I get get, why we need to do this. I get why you have to take that prerequisite. I'm more interested in the electives. So Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. That's 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 my speed. That's where I am. I have never claimed to be, uh, you know, a cultural sophisticate. So no, I, I think you think you are. I think that's the problem. On some of the dumb shit, yeah, yeah I do you're, think. You're, like I'm, too I am absolutely better you're than too the Lost good Boys. For the Lost Boys I'm definitely and too good for the Lost Boys and Phenomena, except for the Chimp. The Chimp. <laughs> we can go and have drinks anytime because that bitch will cut somebody for you, which I appreciate. <laughs> Chips never forget. All right. Well, you'll be happy then that this experiment is over. I am delighted. And that next week we're moving on to just a regular movie you don't want to watch. Okay. I can deal with that. Okay. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. I feel like we should take a moment to, like, recognize John Witherspoon, who we lost mm-hmm. in the course of this recording. He was an immensely talented actor and comedian, and his footprint is all over so much of pop culture, movies, and film, including, like, the list is ridiculous, House Party, Five Heartbeats, The Wayans Brothers, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Living Single, uh... Um, the Boondocks. The Boondocks, Boomerang, Friday... Like, 
Like it just when I got the news that he passed, and I thought about all the places where he showed up and elevated things. You know, it's tremendously impressive, and it is it's a it's a deep deep loss. But you know, we are left with his really brilliant work. So I do think that we should just take a moment to recognize John Witherspoon. This may surprise you, but I haven't seen a lot of those movies. That is an embarrassment. So next week, why don't you introduce me to a John Witherspoon movie? Okay. Um... We don't need we don't need to only switch roles during Black History Month. We always say, oh, we only do black movies during Black History Month. <laughs> so let's let's do a John Witherspoon movie. We can if you'd like Which to do that. Which one would you pick? I have no idea. That's a tough one. We're calling an audible here. I haven't seen House Party. I haven't seen Friday. Okay, so let's do Friday. Okay. As probably the one film most of like quote unquote mainstream pop culture knows him from. So let's do Friday. I don't know what the hell we're gonna talk about. Uh, but I mean, come on, we did. We just did the Lost Boys. No, I know. But there we were like, oh, homoerotic subtext and not. Yeah, that and was this all is bullshit just anyway. Like a funny ass movie, and that's, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily generate a whole lot of conversation. Like we can just sit here and quote lines from Friday, which is. I, a, I made you watch. Stripes and better off dead. I think we're. I think we're okay. So yeah, let's do Friday. Okay, sounds good. Okay, means I don't have to do any homework this week. I'm going to do very little, so (laughs) people should be prepared for a not extensive. uh, You're in the big chair. You love being in the big chair. I hate being in the big chair, and it shows when I'm there. So, (laughs) for those of you watching along at home, Friday is available to rent on Amazon Prime, YouTube, and the other streaming services, and it looks like it's currently playing on Cinemax this month. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, and subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. Okay, I came into our living room earlier this afternoon. Okay, are you really gonna put me on blast? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're gonna, you're being snotty now. <laughs> so I need to tell everyone that I came into the living room after having literally had to drag you to watch all of these horror movies, <laughs> and after listening to you be snotty about great cinematic classics like The Haunting and The Innocence and Don't Look Now, I come into the living room and find you watching. Freddy versus Jason. But why was I watching Freddy versus Jason? I I don't. Please, Bullshit. You know why I was please watching it. Tell I explained us. to you why I was yeah, watching it. I didn't buy it. Number one, <laughs> I was not actively watching it. It was just on while I was doing my work. It was background noise. Number two, it was... Except when I asked you what was happening in it, you knew. So you'd obviously been paying pretty close <laughs> well, attention it's to not the intricate a plot complex of, film. of Freddy vs. So, Jason. Number two. Mm-hmm. Number two, sure. Most importantly, it was a, an intellectual inquiry that set me on this path. Because my understanding of the rules of Freddy Krueger was that he engaged with people in their dreams. So then that, my question is, was Jason asleep? Does Jason go to bed? Does Jason put on pajamas, <laughs> get under a cover, turn out a Snuggle light, up with a teddy bear. take the mask off? Set mm-hmm. an alarm for the next day of killing. Seems like like Jason might have like sleep apnea. Right. He might it, need a CPAP that machine. also then implies mm-hmm. he has a home somewhere. 
<laughs> so this was my does he need a like a one of those weighted blankets mm-hmm. to like calm the anxiety of the day it's so this is <laughs> this was my reason for watching it was like does jason go to bed because i could not fathom that that character slept in like not even standing up not even like i just didn't it, i couldn't i it was that was an odd idea to me and, and so you had to watch the whole and so movie. i had to watch in order to find you watched out. the whole movie though well because no it was on because i came back a little later and it was at the end of the movie and the point is jason doesn't it. sleep jason had apparently died in some earlier film and freddy krueger Liter- literally nobody cares the people who are in the movie don't in care hell or some shit like that but then but then, but so this is what i'm saying then it becomes a super complicated well not complicated but just ridiculous thing of for some reason freddy has like faded from the memories of all the children okay. on Elm Street and so he needs Jason doesn't matter to serve as his proxy in the real world do you so see how you're so can, much like, more engaged because it's fucking ludicrous than you so are in <laughs> any of the great movies that we've watched so that he can go and start killing people and then the people on Elm Street can if be if I like, want this level oh, of engagement from you Freddy we should Kruger apparently be, be watching shit like Freddy versus no, Jason no I had a question and I I have an intellectual curiosity and I, I looked for an answer and I got an answer no jason okay. does not sleep he if, does however apparently dream in hell which again didn't know that that was possible because to me if you're in hell that implies that you're dead and my understanding of death is that there's no brain activity and i think you need brain activity in order to dream <clears throat> so it's a it's a whole thing that was a totally worthy you know use of my time <laughs> if the sound quality just got got a little poor there it's because nakia has been speaking for 20 minutes out her ass <laughs> And I'm not sure the microphone picked it all up. And, and, so Kelly Rowland from Beyonce's. No, okay. We're, Beyonce, we're, Kelly Rowland from Destiny's Child is also in this. this film playing like the cute black sidekick, which she's worthy of so much more. But at one point, Freddy Krueger is attacking them and he calls her dark meat. <laughs> what the fuck? So it's just, there's a we whole lot. We were expecting lot. political correctness from I, Freddy Krueger. dark meat like that. Oh, somebody wrote that down. Again, yeah. I come back mm-hmm. to like, somebody wrote it probably mm-hmm. first by hand and then typed it out and then somebody read it aloud <laughs> and we kept it. So, okay. It's fucking fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are you expecting from the Lost Boys? I'm an elitist vampire. <laughs> I don't I don't even know why we bother. <laughs> I'm not expecting shit. Yeah, apparently not. <laughs>